0: So, I don't know how long it's been since you've been to Interspace Caverns. That's one of those things that's, you know, it's, it's in our community. So, some people, I know they grow up here all their lives and they've, they've never been because it's not a destination you go to. I think a lot of our kids get to go when they're like in third grade or fourth grade and they get to do field trips. But if you don't know the story on Interspace Caverns, uh, it's pretty interesting. The Texas Highway Department in the 60s was upgrading the, the road that went to Austin uh, and, which is I-35, and as they were doing, I guess, core samples or whatever they need to do to determine, can we set a major highway on this road, they were doing some drilling, and they drilled down just over 33 feet, and they hit interspace caverns. And, and dis- that's how they discovered the cave. And so if you go through on a tour, you can, you can uh, go into the, what they call the discovery room. And of course, this picture is from a long time ago when they first discovered it, you can see the hole that's still there that was drilled down, that was the initial one, and uh, where they had a guy, and this is what blows my mind, they had a guy that when they discovered it, they built like a makeshift stirrup, attached it to some drilling equipment, and lowered him down into the cave. So I actually, so you can get a feel for what it's like. The hole that he went down would be that big around, right? Okay, so and the hole is not like it's not like a manhole, like a sewer. That, that width goes 33 feet down through solid rock and then opens up into a cave that's pitch black that no one's ever been into. And that's how they found the discovery room, which if had it been me, it would have been now today called the no thanks I'll pass room. Um, <laughs> because there's no way I would do that. They go in, and, and then later, as they discover more, the same guy tells a story. And this is what, this just, just kills me. Somebody that, you know, is a little bit afraid of heights. Not on the first trip down, but later, after a couple people had been down, and they got lights down there, they got a, one of those chain metal ladders, and they lowered it down. And so a couple people went down, and the, the, the guy who went first ever, the guy that was on that drilling crew, he was down in that group. And he said, when we got down there, the the humidity in there made everything kind of wet. And he said, so my boots got muddy and things got slick. And we had this metal chain ladder that swung. And he said, on the way back up, I was going last. And he apparently a bigger guy. He said, when I got to the hole, I realized as I was going up that the hole was not wide enough for me to bend my knees to get my foot on the ladder. So for 33 feet with a wet metal ladder, he did chin-ups and would put his feet in and chin himself up and put his feet in. Again, I'd still be down there. They would, have, they would have like, they would have blasted and like, hey, we're into the cave. I've been down there waiting. Like, thanks guys, finally you got here three years later to get me out of here. It's crazy, but you know, to go first to something like that is scary because it involves risk, right? I mean, anytime, anytime we have to go first, there's, there's some risk involved, And so, we, most of us, would much rather go second or third or go and let somebody else take the risk. Now, at the Super Bowl three or four years ago, Cars.com had a commercial. And I want you to see it. I clipped off the end about what they were selling with Cars.com. But the whole gist was how dangerous or how risky it is to go first. So, watch this quick 10 second clip. Poison checker! Sometimes it's better to let others go first so that we can learn their experiences. See if it's clear. Nope, ain't clear. Right? I mean, that, that's, they, they gave a great picture of what it's like to go first. We don't want to be the person who's the poison checker. We don't want to be the first person into the experiment. We don't want to be the first person to see if the live fire has stopped, you know, and out there it's risky to go first. I mean, think about the TVs or movies, uh, TV shows or movies you've seen where this scenario took place. It's it's a romantic movie. There's a guy and a girl, and and he loves her, and she loves him, and he comes to the point where he's gonna tell her that he loves her for the first time, and the music's going, and he says, you know, I love you. And then the music stops, and we all know what's coming, and she goes, okay. You know, and, and... you know, I mean, we have, we've seen that in all kinds of different scenarios, right? That, and we, we laugh and we, we connect with that movie because we've all been there of, of that risking of, am I going to say in this romantic relationship, I love you first? And in that scenario, the, the risk is rejection. It's that, it's that I might go out there and say something before I know you're in. I don't, I don't want to go first. And that, let's go together or let me go second. I want to know that I'm in. I mean, we feel that all the time. And so first is almost always riskier than second or third or last, unless you're like being chased by zombies or wild dogs and you don't want to be last, you want to be first. But generally speaking, and when it comes to relationships, first can be dangerous. I remember like as an eighth grader, Dana Anderson, and I found out that Dana Anderson liked me. And so this is how it worked in eighth grade. Dana Anderson told all of her girlfriends, I think I I like him, and her girlfriends went to my guy friends, and they said, hey, Dana likes Brett. Do you think Brett likes her? And so they came to me, and they said, do you like her? And so I had to talk with them. I don't know, do I? (laughs) I I mean, I think she's pretty, but do you guys? Because if y'all don't think she's pretty, I can't ask her out, because then you're going to make fun of me and the Brotherhood Code, and they're like, oh, yeah, she's cute. Okay, yeah, well, then I like her. Okay, so they go back to her friends and say, yeah, he likes her, and they go to her, and they go, he likes you. So so okay cool. And then so I'm going to ask her out. I know she likes me, she knows I like her, but but I want to know for sure that if I ask her to go out, I and mean, she's going to say yes, so I talk to my guy friends who talk to her girlfriends who talk to her, and she says, oh, yeah, if he asks me out, then I'm all in, and that gets to them, and it comes back to my guy friends, and it comes back to me, then we have to get the wins and the where's that's going to happen, and it goes back to the same process, that by the time that moment comes, really, all that was needed to, to seal the deal was just like a head nod, like, you know, I mean, you know, we're, we're all in, I mean, there was more chatter and work done for that relationship than, like, Homeland Security does for, like, you know, a terrorist target. I mean, we knew more information before we got there. Why? Because my emotions were at risk. Even when I knew that she liked me, my emotions were at risk. I don't want to say, hey, can we be boyfriend or girlfriend? Can we go out or whatever? And her go, no. Because that, that would have been Terrible. So going first is scary, but it's not just romantic relationships. It's the same thing uh, with any relationship, with friendships. Uh, Thinking back to those early years uh, as a junior high student even, I can remember walking into our youth group, living in Germany. It was called Quest. I'm 40, so that was some years ago, but I can remember walking in and standing along the back wall, kind of watching everything happen, leaning with my back against the wall, you know, so I, I... because of the uncomfortability, wanting to be in relationship with people who are talking and doing things, but having that, I don't even know if it was subconscious, it was probably very consciously clear fear of walking up to a group of people and being like, hey, and somebody going, who are you? They might have actually just went, hey, who are you? But I would have heard who are you? You look weird and you smell different and we don't like you. Get out of here, loser. I mean, that, that was, you know, from that junior high mentality, that's what I was afraid was going to happen by going first. So I, I stood in the back and, and watched because initiating a relationship, going first, being the one to stick my hand out, to introduce myself, to put myself in a group of, of people who were already there who I didn't know was risky, extremely risky. Now, as we get older, us sitting in this room, that that fear and that risk lowers a little bit, but some of us don't have very close friendships or friendships outside of our own family or, or very close knit circle because of the same fears and insecurities. Because we're afraid to step out and risk that the person we invested in might not like us or might not invest back, and so we're content to walk with the friendships that we have or that we don't have because of. That fear, but sometimes in life, and you would tell your kids this: sometimes in life, going first or taking that risk is worth it. Um, Don't hit the picture yet because I don't want to give it away. But there's a tell you who who this is in a second. There's a guy that uh, named Mike Markula, and most of you probably don't know who Mike Markula is. But Mike Markula uh, was an engineer. He worked for um, he worked for Intel and a couple other places, and he was one of those guys that was in the right place at the right time during that uh, tech boom. So he ended up, because of stock options that were given to him from uh, a semiconductor plant, Intel, he retires at 32 years old, which, God bless him. Uh, I mean, right place, right time, so the guy's got more wealth he knows what to do with, and in his later years, if we can call 33 that, he's looking at doing things with his money to invest, and he's looking at startups, and so he's kind of in that world, and he has a friend that approaches him and says, hey, I've got some guys that are looking for a startup that I think may fit you. There's these two guys, and so uh, why don't you come meet them? And so he meets them. One of the guys shows up. He's unkempt. He's, I mean, not like he's trying to get, doesn't, isn't dressed like he's trying to get money for a startup company. So much so that Markula asked his, his friend, introduced him. He said, why did you send me this renegade from the human race? That was the quote. You know, he said that, this guy's asking for money, but whatever happened along the way, he decided I'll invest. So he took $80,000 of his own money and invest in this company, he became one-third owner. The two guys that had the idea were the other two-thirds. He was the money. He was the one-third owner. You haven't heard of Mike Markula, but you've probably heard of the other two guys, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. They started Apple. His $80,000 investment when Apple went public became $203 million. Sometimes it's good to go First. Sometimes the risk is worth, to. when we talk about relationships, and we've been in this series called Friends, great friends, or people who have great relationships, are people who are initiators in their relationships. They're they're willing to take the risk to go first. Now, I want us to look in John chapter 15. That's where we've been for the last four weeks, and we've just been going through um, about five verses, verse by verse. But we've been reading it all because I think it's good for us to hear what Jesus says as he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to them in some very endearing ways, and he even calls them friends. And so for the last time during the series, I want to read us verses 12 through 17, and we'll come back and and zero in on this bottom line point that great friends are initiators in a relationship. So verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you'll love one another. A great passage to spend time in, especially as we talk about becoming a church that loves God and loves people. Jesus gives us some very clear, uh, a very clear picture into his relationships of the people that he's walking with and he loves. And so over the last couple of weeks, hopefully you've been talking about it at home. I know our students have been talking it down the hallways with their small groups. We've gone through this passage and we've learned a couple of things that, that great friends love like Jesus does. And we kind of dug into what that means because that sounds like a very trite saying, but we talked about what agapal love means and that it is this constant and deep love from God to an unworthy person and that we're to love that way. And Then a couple weeks before, uh, or a week after that, we said that good friends become great friends, a sacrifice. We talked about what would we be willing to give up for that person that we're in a relationship with that we call a friend. And then last week, David talked to us about the great friends are disciple makers. Great friends are walking with their their friends, with their spouses, even with their kids, and the friendship is more than just acquaintance. The friendship is, how can I push you closer to Jesus? And how can you invest in me in a way that I'm drawn closer to Jesus? And this week, we stop and look at verse 16. Or Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Now, when we go back to Jesus' day and age and and I've shared this with people before. One of the problems is I don't remember what I've shared on stage to you guys, what I've shared with mentees and things like that. So some of this may be review, but we're just going to count it as a Holy Spirit-inspired Holy Spirit review if it is. But when we go back to that culture and understand what's happening, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, okay? So, And there's a lot of different rabbis, but Jesus is this teacher. Jesus is Uh, will quickly rise up to become one of the most inspiring, one of the most controversial, uh, one of the rabbis that that gathers large crowds for people to listen to. But in that day and age, being able to follow a rabbi or being a disciple of a rabbi was a prestigious thing. It would have been somewhat similar to going to college. And depending on the, how well the rabbi was elevated in that rabbinical world depended, you know, the type of person who got to go and follow him. So you had rabbis that were like Rabbi Harvard and Rabbi Yale that, that would draw the top students. And those rabbis, if, if a guy that, that hadn't put in the work, that, that hadn't memorized the Torah like he should, a guy that was not fit for that came and said, I wanna follow you, Rabbi Harvard, the answer would be no, you're not ready to go with me. There were other rabbis. There was like Rabbi Texas and Rabbi Texas A&M, you know, that were not Harvard or Yale maybe, but they were pretty close and, you know, and people did that. And then, you know, at at the bottom, there was like uh, Rabbi Eastern Idaho, you know, where no offense if you went, I don't know if there's an Eastern Idaho, but I can't imagine it's like a place that's a destination for many people. But, you know, that, but, but man, you could, you could go, but if that rabbi didn't say, okay, as you went and went through the process to say, hey, I want to follow you, if the rabbis kind of closed their teaching group, their disciples, then you went and learned to trade. And you went and became a fisherman or a tax collector, or you became something that these disciples that ended up following Jesus were. And so more than likely what's happened is these guys that Jesus ends up having his disciples have missed out on their chance. But all of their peers had went after something. They had went after these rabbis. They had actually initiated the relationship for the most part. The, can we follow you? Our, our parents have, given, have saved up money so that we can support you as you go and teach and we follow. But then here comes Jesus, counterintuitive to what happened normally, which is so interesting because that's the way Todd taught as well. And he comes and finds the guys who missed their chance and he says, hey, you, Peter, Simon, who's fishing, drop your nets, come follow me. Matthew, you, come follow me. And so now we're, we're further along into their journey, not too much further. And Jesus is reminding them in their relationship, and he's called them friends. And he's saying, not only am I rabbi and you teacher, but we're, we're friends. We have a, a close relationship. And I want you to remember this. I chose you. I initiated this relationship. I'm the one that approached you and came after you. I'm the one that saw value in you. I'm the one that saw a future for you. I'm the one that said you could become something by the grace of God that no one else sees. And Jesus reminds him of that. I've chosen you. And then he reminds him of why. He says, because I've appointed you to go and to, to bear fruit. You're going to become something that you never would have been on your own because of our time together. Now, that ties into this idea we talked about last week of being a friend who's a disciple maker, a friend who leans in and helps push people towards Jesus so they become something that they wouldn't be without him. But one of the most difficult things is being that initiator, being the person who's willing to risk. And there's a couple things that stand out to me as we, as we read this story about Jesus and we think through what happened that time that Jesus takes risk, just like, just like we would be doing if we were being initiated in a relationship. Jesus could have went to those guys and said, hey, come follow me, and they could have said, eh, pass. I mean, I've already, I got the business now. I mean, that that, that season of my life is gone. I mean, I, I, I tried, it didn't work out, and now my father's relying on me to help run the fishing business, or I can't just walk away from the Roman government as a tax collector. You know, that, I'm sure that didn't go over real well. Um, it, Jesus took risk, and then we look at it, and we go, okay, did Jesus though, can we really compare ourselves to Jesus, right? I mean, we know that like thousands of people gathered at a time to hear Jesus. So he was a little bit more compelling than you or I probably are. I mean, looking at historically, And so we look, well, is that really fair? Did Jesus really take risks? Because apparently there was something about him that drew people, whether it be the miracles or whatever. So it's not quite the same thing. But if you go to John chapter 6, verse 66, what you find out is that a large number of disciples, not acquaintances, not crowd, a large number of disciples turned and left him at that moment because of his hard teaching. So Jesus was well aware of rejection I mean, he was rejected by the people that he came to love in the end. But we, when we look at him, yes, he was compelling, and yes, he did draw a crowd, and yes, there were people who wanted to follow him. But we find out that that group of people that wanted to follow him actually was a large crowd at times, but often became very, very narrow when they went, you know what, we're going to pass. I don't want to do that. I don't like what you're teaching. I don't like what you're asking. I mean, there's guys we know in the Scripture that came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, really? Because there's no place. I mean, we, we sleep on rocks. Birds of the air have a nest, but we don't. And, and, and in the story, when Jesus tells that, the guy doesn't go, cool, I'm in. I mean, he walks away. And the rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, everything you've got. And the guy goes, no thanks, I'll pass. So Jesus was well acquainted with rejection, but Jesus was also confident enough in who he was and what God had called him to do, that he was willing to take that risk and initiate relationships and say to some disciples, come and follow me. Come, I want to have this relationship with you. I want to invest in you and I want to share life with you. The second thing that stands out for me is this, that Jesus comes from a position of power. I'm not talking about the fact that he was God. That is pretty impressive. But even from his humanity, he's a rabbi. He's the religious leader. He's the one That most people should want to follow. He's the one that could have sat back and went, Well, I'll wait to see who's interested in me. But he doesn't. From his position of power, he goes to people and says, Hey, I choose you. I want to initiate this relationship with you. Come and follow me. Now, for us, let's not talk as parents to teenagers, let's just talk about us and our relationships. Are you an initiator? And it's a rhetorical question. You know, to answer it, are are you willing to look at people that God has placed inside your circle and go, you know what? I will reach out to become a friend. One, maybe because you need friends. Two, maybe because they do. I tell you, it's much easier, much easier to drive home, pull into the garage, close the garage door, get out, do life inside the four walls of our house, and the next morning, drive to work, be acquaintances with people along the way, speak at the water cooler, maybe grab lunch with somebody occasionally, and then go home and do it all again without ever having to risk emotions, to risk our stories, to risk our time, to risk anything, especially to be the initiator. But Jesus gives us this picture as we close up this series on friends. We are to love like Jesus loves. And we are to sacrifice. We want to have great friends. We're to be disciple makers. But we we probably should have done this first because in some instances it's the hardest. We just did it last because that's the way it came in, in the in the passage. But we're gonna to have to be initiators. We're gonna be the ones that say, Hey, I'm gonna go and do it's true in not just getting new friends, it's true in friends that you have. How many people do you know? This may even be your story. How many people do you know that had a friendship that was already established go sideways because someone was wronged and somebody's feelings got hurt and both sides stood waiting for somebody to come forward first to ask forgiveness, right? I mean, think about the fights. If you're married, think about the fights that you've had in the last month or so or week or this morning that you might still be sitting like going, oh, this is about to get uncomfortable. Does he know what happened on the way to work, on the way to church? I don't. But but you're sitting there and you're you're mad and you're angry and you're having a hard time listening, you're having a hard time focused, as is your spouse, and you're both waiting on the other person to admit that they were wrong. Right? That, that's how it usually works. And in reality, if you were very honest, even if your spouse was primarily at fault, you probably didn't handle it the right way you probably stirred the pot a little bit in your response. I mean, that's what happens in my home. I mean, because I'm wrong like 1% of the time, you know, and um, during that 1%, you know, I could have been a little more loving and saved the fight. We'll record Wednesday. I won't say that because she'll listen to this later, right? But who, how, how does the relationship be healed? Not just starting a new friendship. How does the relationship get her? Someone initiates, Someone steps forward and say, hey, you know what? Let me apologize for what I've done because I handled that wrong. I I may not, we may still not agree on what we're arguing about, but, but I want to ask your forgiveness for what I did. You know what happens when somebody initiates? It's much easier to go second. The person goes, hey, I'm sorry too. And the relationship begins to get healed. So this initiating isn't just about making new friends. It's about being a great friend. For us in the room, if you're married, it's about being a great spouse. If you're not married and you're looking towards that one day to go, hey, maybe I will be, that same, that same principle is true. It's the same thing with our kids. You wanna have great relationships with your kids? Initiate the relationship. And, and here's what happens. If you have teenagers, a, a lot of them are like, nope, Pass no thanks, don't come near me, I don't really want to talk. But if you will continue being the initiator in the relationship, if you'll continue being the person who who reaches out to talk, you will find those moments where the windows open and you can dive through and have some spiritual conversations that turn into disciple-making moments. That's how it works. You know, the reason why we have parents across the the church, and I'm talking about the church globally, that aren't disciple-makers? Because they've quit initiating relationships with their kids because they've been rejected by their teenager too many times. And when you hear me say that, that sounds crazy. You know, we go, that's my kid. I'll, I'll show them." you know. I'll, they're not going to reject me. But even as an adult, when our kid who used to love us and hang out with us and want to, to be with us all the time, gets to that point where they're like, ah, mom, dad, you don't dress like I want to hang out. Drop me off at the edge, of, you know, drop me off three blocks from school. I don't want you pulling. And all those things it starts to weigh on us, and we start to feel the rejection. You've got to initiate the relationship with your kids, with your spouse, with the people around you. So here's what my prayer is all the time. I always want us, and our students too, anytime we open up the Word of God, I don't want us to fill our heads with knowledge. I don't want us to walk out and somebody go, hey, what'd y'all talk about? I would love if you went, hey, well, we talked about great friends are initiators in their relationships. I'd love if that stuck. But what I would love more is if you, if you couldn't remember that, is if you did something with John 15, 16. If, if, as you listen to it and as you reflect it over this week, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and go, here's how you can be an initiator. And he may have already. There might be somebody in the room that like the Holy Spirit went, oh, boom, busted. Apologize to your spouse. You know, and, you're, and good. You've got some application to walk out with. But we want to take the word of God and we want to be doers of the word. That's what James tells us. And so, Every week when we get together, I kind of give ideas. Now, I want to say this, and I say it pretty, pretty often. I'm going to give you a couple of ideas. You don't have to do any of these things. I just I give you some ideas to, to give you some framework of how to think. How do I take John 15:16 and take it off the Word into my life? So as I think of these things, maybe the Spirit, Holy Spirit whispers to me something different. I don't care what you do. If you're doing these ideas I'm about to give you, but I want you to do something this week something today to say god i 'm going to take a step forward in obedience because your word has been open to me. you initiated a relationship with your disciples. I want to initiate be initiated in my relationships because that 's what great friends do and so god i 'm going to practice that today by this so here are just a couple of ideas one make the commitment to learn a new name anytime you walk into this building I and mean, we sit in our small groups, hopefully you know your small group name. Make, take, make the commitment, and you can set it, have some accountability, set a short amount of time. Hey, for the next six months or for, from now until May, every time I walk in the building, I'm going to learn somebody's name that I didn't know before. Or I'm going to initiate the relationship in such a way that even though they've told me their name four times and I still don't remember it, I'm going to be a friend who asks again rather than a person who runs because I don't do good with names. I'm terrible terrible with names. Yesterday, um, you, Aggies, y'all, I love this. I went down to College Station Friday night and Saturday to do a conference. Um, and so I got to go to the Mecca and uh, see it. Well, actually, I actually didn't see the university, but it was in the city. Doing this conference. And so there's a guy who is uh, from Georgia who, or Florida who's, who's doing part of the session, and then I'm doing second session. So, I've gotten an email for a month or two as they've been sending stuff. So, I know the guy's name, I know his name is Rick. Um, I've seen it in, in, in multiple emails, you know, as the schedule's lined out, things like that. Read his name at least a dozen times. I get there Saturday morning, I go in, I meet him, shake his hand, and he introduces himself. He's Rick, I'm Brett. Great to meet you. We go to the session, he goes first, the guy introduces him, tells his name Rick, tells Rick's story. An hour later, when it's my turn to speak, and I go to reference something that he's talked about in the session before, I'm like, well, y'all remember back in session one? Yeah. <laughs> for the life of me, like, I'm terrible at names. But that's not the excuse, because I've got to be the initiator in a relationship. So I tell teenagers, i probably told you guys sometimes before, when I meet you for the first time, I, people have taught me the tricks. Yeah, I mean, I know the trick, like shake their hand and say their name back to them. And it does not help me. I'm slow. I mean, that's just what it is. And so I've told people before hey, please don't be offended if I ask your name like five or six times because I'll, I'll probably, but it's more important to me to do that than to go, hey, I'm just going to be honest, tell me your name again, than to not know you. It makes, it's worth it to have the relationship. So maybe that's a way that you start initiating some relationships. Maybe it's a baby step to go, I'm going to practice I'm going to step out. And I'm gonna learn somebody new's name every time I walk in here because one or two of those relationships may become a catalyst to your own discipleship journey. Does that make sense? Here's the second thing you can do. Um, Invite someone. Invite someone to share a meal with you, to lunch, and to come with you next week. Or sometimes you've got a couple friend or you've got a friend uh, who's got a teenager, somebody that maybe you're on a sports team with together or they're in school, they're in your neighborhood, to say, hey, come, why not you come to worship with me and, and let's go grab lunch afterwards. I mean, we eat lunch at work with people that we hang out with, with your friends, right? I mean, that's, we share meals quite a bit as part of a relationship journey. Well, what if being the initiators be the person who says, would you go to lunch with me? And use it to be a part of the disciple-making thing. Hey, come join us. I want to show you our parenting teen class. Come to worship with us. Uh, and let's go eat lunch and, and just hang out. I'd love for you to do that. It does it isn't going to make the, the possibility of rejection disappear. I mean, they might go, no. Did you not know? Like, I'm an atheist. You not know, no, you know, I'm not interested in that. It doesn't make the fear of rejection go away, but it holds you accountable and you go, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask to practice being the initiator in the relationship." Or the third thing, we talked about love where you live back in the fall. Remember that series? Talked about our neighbors. Talked about block parties. At 11 o'clock and 930 services, we, we put doors out, and many of us signed our names on doors saying, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love where I live few weeks ago, one of those doors came back up on stage because it was a part of, uh, of Kevin's message. It wasn't just a sermon series that now is in the vault and done. It, it's who we are as we love God and love people. So maybe, maybe your application is to take another step forward. I've got to go initiate something with my next door neighbor. Maybe that's the person, maybe you invite them, maybe they go to another church already. You know that. You invite them into your home for a meal. Maybe, you're, maybe the initiation is just to go knock on the door and go, hey, I just want to see how your weekend was going. That might be a little, I mean, you might, wait, that might be a little weird. I don't know if, that wasn't in my notes. I just popped out right then. That's one of those moments where you're like, okay, maybe that's not a great application. But you see them in the yard or something, you walk over and, and, and talk with them to initiate the relationship. It's practicing the word of God. And what happens is as we become initiators of relationships, we become a person who becomes a great friend. Again, not just new friendships. Maybe your application, those are, a lot of those are kind of new friendships. Maybe your application is to initiate something that somebody you're already close with. Maybe, maybe you need to just walk up to a friend and go, hey, how can I pray for you? That's initiating something in a relationship. Asking them, can you engage spiritually, which is a very intimate thing, can get me scared. Maybe, that's, maybe it's not a new friend. Maybe it's an old friend that you need to initiate depth in a relationship with close with this. This is pretty interesting. You hit that slide up, um, the one with the moon landing. Do you know that this, this is an actual quote about the moon landing? Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore it in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know there's hope for mankind in their sacrifice. You never heard that quote. But Nixon had it. Because when those guys landed on the moon, we didn't know they were coming back. We got the story in hindsight. We know it's a celebration. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are names that all of us in this room know because they were pioneers, the first guys on the moon. But Nixon had that speech ready to read in case they didn't make it back. Some heavy words to know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know there's hope for mankind in their sacrifice. Being the first carries risk. But it also carries great possibilities. Whether it's moon landings or our relationships, be the person who is confident who God has called you to be, to risk rejection, to risk whatever it is out there, To be a friend to somebody that might end up being a disciple-making friend and might give you an opportunity to love somebody in a way they haven't been loved. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, who knows what might happen when you're standing in heaven and they're standing next to you. And that's because you initiated the relationship. I'm going to pray for us, and then you're going to have about 15, 20 minutes uh, to talk in your small group.